Okay, I uh, I want to welcome uh, Stephen Gasteyer. I learned how to say his name properly uh, to this idea seminar. Uh, Stephen is an old friend and colleague. We uh, know him quite well from the period he was doing his research for his PhD, which is now about to become a forthcoming book, uh, which Stephen did on. Landscape, land use, uh, and land utilization in the southern Palestine region, mostly in the Hebron area. Uh, since then, he has gone to greener pastures and greater vocational possibilities. He is currently associate professor of sociology at Michigan State University, and he has worked extensively on issues of land development, community development, landscape change and implications of food, water, and public health. His um, many publications include uh, two uh, contributions to two books. Um, one is titled Leadership in Rural Communities, and um, the other is Rural Communities, Legacies, and Change. But more importantly, his uh, doctoral thesis uh, was titled Historical Perception of Landscape Change in Southern Palestine. And this year, uh, Stephen is here with us working on producing a book out of it. He has worked with a number of associations, including REACH, UNIS projects on agroecosystems, uh, and with the Palestine Institute for Arid Lands and Environmental Studies, which is in? It was in Hebron, I believe it no longer exists. Um, but uh, this was Sofian Sultan's. Uh, ah, yes. So, so it collapsed after you left? But Sofian still exists. <laughs> Sofian is the Minister of Agriculture. Yeah. Uh, okay, so without further the ado, <laughs> <laughs> the title of uh, Stephen's work of uh, input today is Palestinian Human Right to Water and Sanitation, Opportunities and Potential Details. I think you'll be talking about methodological approaches. Yes, and so um, that actually I can just segue right into talking about what I intend to do today, which is a little bit unconventional for this uh, kind of a talk, but um, having arrived at Michigan State University, in uh, 2008 um, with the background of doing community development work. I, I found myself in my department chair's office as an untenured professor surrounded by people from Flint, Michigan, um, saying we need people to come and to help us understand the social aspects of the variety of issues we're dealing with. And uh, um, if I don't know if you've been following the US news. Um, but Flint is actually quite prominent right now. It is one of the great water debacles in American history, in US American history. Um, and it's been building ever since I started working there. I, I hope I'm not the, 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 the cause, but rather somebody who is giving early warning signs. But you know, the messengers sometimes get confused. But what I wanted to do today, and what, what this has meant is I have become versed in 
both the activist community and the applications of those who are making claims about the human right to water and sanitation in a US context, um, both from an urban perspective, so water and sanitation, and then also in part because I early on was taking a, a settler colonial approach to Palestine, was approached by the tribes in Michigan to help help them think about how to make claims to um, to takings under a settler colonial regime. Yeah, among Indians, right? So I have three cases in the US, and what I want to do today is talk a little bit about this notion of a human right to water and sanitation, how it's been used in the context of the states, but thinking about how that can, some of what I've learned from that might contribute to understanding how we might think about this as a tool here. So, um, so it, so we have these three cases in the United States that, that were introductive to me. Um, in in uh, summer of 2014, much as Flint was in the is in the news now, um, the Detroit, Michigan was very much in the news also for water problems. In that case, it was massive water shutoffs because people were being asked to pay um, bill, water bills that were frankly unsustainable, over often over $100 a month. Um, and a city that was zealously under a neoliberal regime going after those who were not paying. So the, um, the second is Flint, Michigan, which is um, not only are the rates tremendously high, but as it turns out, the attempt to fix it without the state putting in money involved switching water sources, which has led to corrosion of the lead pipes, and um, the water is effectively poisoned in Flint, Michigan. Um, and then the last is this tribal case of Eagle Creek, Eagle Creek Michigan, where a band of the Chippewa Indians has been trying to use the human right to water and sanitation as a way to stop um, an aggressive mining effort um, by the state of Michigan, who um, one has to admit as a, as a US citizen really is a late stage of, of what the Israelis do here, right? I mean, this, this is a state. So I'm, I, as it turns out, as I was putting together my PowerPoint presentation for today, I opened up my, um, I, I was looking for a good picture to put in and opened up my, my browser and sure enough there were the Russians who are always very happy to um, point out when the Americans are being um, lambasted in front of the United Nations. Uh, their news agency points out that the representatives of activist groups in Flint and in Detroit were just on this very day at the United Nations explaining that, this, that there have been violations to human rights, uh, to water and sanitation, to, the, to those populations in the cities who happen to be um, non-dominant population, right? These are the African Americans. So this is a very this is an issue that's very much in the news right now, but my 
what I want to do today is to talk a little bit about how this has been applied in the context of the US. Um, first, to talk about the, the human right to water and sanitation and some of the background on, on how that moved forward. What are some frameworks to think about that? Then talk a little bit, very briefly, about these cases in, in uh, Flint and Detroit, and then to finish by effectively opening up the convert, opening up what I hope will be a vibrant conversation about how then do we think about the role of research in in using this this in feeding this um, notion of a human right to water and sanitation in the context of Palestine. Um, and you will note in my title, in my very long title, and I joked with somebody that. You know, if you just make your title long enough, then you actually don't need an abstract. You just keep referring back to words. But the, this notion that there are, there are, this is not a strategy that that is without pitfalls. And so, trying to acknowledge what some of those are, as well as some of the opportunities. Um, so, uh, so really. Um, let's start by, as a, as a sociologist, I always try to go back to a, an overarching framework to try to understand um, a given issue, right? And one of the ways to think about where we are right now is that we've, we've moved in terms of water from a modernist framework, where the, where the what nations were doing in the 1950s through the 70s was building, um, was putting in the, the structural building blocks of industrial capitalism. And that this really explains this heavy dam building um, exercise and putting in infrastructure. In Interestingly, we think of the US as, as terribly developed. In fact, rural, the rural United States in 1950, um, 50% of the population, no, that's not quite true, 27% of the population lacked access to complete plumbing facilities. And many of us who grew up going to visit grand grandparents in rural in the rural US in you know, 19, early 19, mid-1960s know that, right? There was the outhouse in the back that you still went out to. By and part of what what the great society was doing, what the war on poverty was doing, was putting in the, the physical infrastructure that created the, the makings of a modern state. And so you were, it was all about industrial enterprises that were literally modernizing water as we know it. Right? And this was also the case, um, you know, uh, we've talked before about the, the Gap Dam, but the Gap Dam was modeled on TVA. TVA was very much part of this same initiative in the U.S. TVA is the Tennessee Valley Authority. Um, and we saw it, you know, you can think about the U.S., you think about Canada. Um, the, the Virtually everywhere in the world they were involved in these big dam building initiatives through the 1970s. The thing was you needed lots of government money to make that happen. And starting in the late 1970s, globally, you saw um, a shift toward, um, toward a framework that wanted to move away from government 
and channel money into the private sector. And so the privatization framework really started in the early 80s, really picked up steam by the 1990s. Um, and the, the argument, one argument you can make is that privatization was about, um, was, was led to this current, to this emphasis that has been very much in play since the early 2000s toward thinking about human rights to water as something for which you need human rights. Um, so you have these three waves. And if you look at uh, Michael Borovoy is a Marxist scholar from, from UC Berkeley um, who, who, um, has, who introduced this notion of, of uh, building on Polanyi's notion of movements and counter movements. Um, but, but really note, really argues that this commodification or, uh, if you will, privatization of nature was this third wave. And the response to that is this, it, by civil, civil society is this um, making more explicit a notion of human rights. Okay. So if that's the case, then one of the things we have to think about is where does this human rights to water come from in terms of UN documents, right? And thinking about um, thinking about the um, the documents at the UN as being um, as building us towards this, right? So it's it's in the um, you start to what is interesting is that the scholars who have looked at the human right to water and sanitation, when they go back and they look at the documents, it's, it's very clear that in 1948, the notion, the, the framers of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights presumed that water was so taken for granted as a, as a basic right that it didn't need to be mentioned. Right? And, and that notion that it's so taken for granted then carries over to the um, UN Water Conference in the mid-1970s. But then already from 1979, you're starting to see explicit reference to water in the Declaration of, of Violence Against Women, um, uh, uh, the, or Discrimination Against Women, and then and the Rights of the Child. Um, but at the same time, you're seeing very aggressive moves towards privatization. And so the Dublin Conference is considered infamous by, uh, by water rights activists because it was at the Dublin Conference on Water, which in many ways can be considered the first World Water Forum, um, which is a non-UN meeting that happens once every three years with a whole range of water players from around the world. Um, the Dublin conference was um, was the place where these notions that water should be seen not as a common good but as a commodity to be invested in was really enshrined in the um, in the documents that came out of that conference. Um, the the International Conference on Population Development makes a passing reference to water, but does not weigh in on this. But then, um, uh, 
in the midst of it, as the outcome of the Dublin Conference is being debated, the water wars in Bolivia take, um, take place in 1999. For those, of us, for those of you who don't know uh, the water wars in Bolivia, what happened was that the, um, the government of Bolivia made a decision to, um, to further efforts to implement water privatization by giving a contract to Halliburton which proceeded to, um, at, which involved taking over water sources, not only of the city of um, uh, La Paz, but also the surrounding barrios. And uh, uh, actually, it was first Cochabamba, and then it was La Paz. Um, and uh, then would, and then put in place a water rate that would ensure a return on investment at a time, at, in a time frame that would look good to their, um, their investors. Um, which spiked water rates to a point where people found it unaffordable and, that, and led to massive street protests. Uh, someone was killed in the street protests. The, the, um, the director was actually run out of the country almost literally. Um, so it, it, and in many ways, it sparked the international movement around the, um, around a notion of uh, right to water. Um, you, so, so you start to see these, um, these debates carrying out at a series of international conferences. Um, but finally, in 2010, uh, international civil society activists um, saw an opening with the uh, Bolivian, was it the Bolivian? No. Yes, the Bolivian ambassador to the UN to push forward an actual human right to water and sanitation at the UN, at the, um, UN itself. And that's where we get the UNGA resolution 64292, which was passed unanimously, but with, with um, uh, Trying to remember the exact number, forty abstentions, I think. Um, one of which was the U.S. Israel and the U.S. were both abstainers, um, but in the end would not vote no on the on the resolution. And then the Human Rights Council passed companion resolution that set up a special rapporteur, so it gave it some uh, some teeth. And. Uh, and so in the midst of all of that, we have the, um, the World Water Forums, which were established. Um, and the notion of the World, World Water Forum was that these would be forums that would come together to debate the large issues of the day. What is notable is that um, there in Marrakesh, there was a, a ministerial uh, document that, that effectively said water needs the, needs input from the private sector. In The Hague, there was a document that said, yes, but we have to take care about making sure that this is done in the right way. By Kyoto, there was a major debate uh, that, and um, in the end, there was no mention of the human right to water and sanitation, but it was debated very heavily uh, to the point where you had national disagreements on the floor. And by 2006, um, there was tacit recognition that there should be a human right to water and sanitation and 
and sanitation um, in these forums, um, followed by similarly in Istanbul and then in Marseille in 2012. And in South Korea as well, this is the most recent one. Um, so here's what actually comes out of the UN resolution. So acknowledging the importance of equitable access to safe, safe and clean drinking water and sanitation as an integral component of the realization of all human rights, reaffirming the responsibility of states for the promotion and protection of, of all human rights, etc., etc., and recognizing that the right to, to safe and clean drinking water and sanitation as a human right that is essential for full enjoyment of life and all human rights. Good. So then, what does that mean? Well, now we have to think about the mechanisms, right? Once it's passed, the, it's just words on paper, then, then how does this get implemented? And um, this is where we need to think about the human rights system um, and the notion that there, are, there is a global system. There is a global office, and then there's regional. But then within that, there are regional systems where, in which these kinds of things can take on uh, meaning. Um, what is notable is that at the global system, the, the companion resolutions led to the establishment of a special rapporteur on the human right to, to safe drinking water and sanitation. Um, and that the first special rapporteur was the woman on the right. Her name is Katarina de Albuquerque. Um, the second is, uh, I had him in my notes, but I of course didn't get out my notes. Um, gentleman who's far less charismatic than, uh, than Katarina de Albuquerque. Uh, um, just appointed, he's a Brazilian. Um, uh, interestingly, the first special rapporteur was a lawyer by training who's done a lot of work on human right to water and sanitation. This, this second rapporteur who is much less um, in the public spotlight is an engineer by training. Um, and so we can speculate on what that, if there's any meaning in that. But, um, let's okay, now, the trick is really thinking about what do we mean, what are we talking about, right? And this is where the human right to water and sanitation becomes, uh, starts to take on meaning. Are we talking about, and in this case then, we can sort of list the things that come out of the documents. And so the notion that what there should be access to water, that the water should be potable, that it should come in sufficient supply, that it should be affordable, that there should not be discrimination in how much different parties get, then, and that there should be public participation in access to information so that so that water can be provided. And then there should be an accountability mechanism, a remedy, right? So what does that mean in, in real terms? Well, one of the things that I think we have to recognize up front, and this was part of the debate within the civil society that around, around the time that they were pushing for this, the, um, indigenous groups in particular, indigenous civil society groups, were very upset that the, the resolution as it was finally 
past really only talked about water and sanitation for daily human needs. And this and um, and so it is that that really limits the scope of what can be called for. Right. So we think about think about your rural community for that's that's heavily ground, say a rural community in Jericho, do, in terms of livelihood, is daily human needs all they want water for? Well, I suppose it, it, it depends how you define daily human needs, but as, as it has been defined most commonly, that means just for drinking for domestic purposes, right? Whereas your community in in the Jordan Valley is likely to need that water for irrigation as well as for drinking and bathing to if they have any hope of remaining there as a community, right? Um, so, so this has been one of the contentious points and I'm gonna talk a little bit, the Eagle Creek um, example is interesting because it's, a, it's, an, it's an attempt, one of many, and we're, we're in discussion with with others to try to redefine this daily human needs bit so that it, it can fit the, the um, claims of groups like your, uh, your village in the, in the Jordan Valley. But given that, this notion of safe drinking water means that we have to think about clean water, right? In particular, is is this free from hazardous substances could, that could endanger human health, whose color, odor, and taste are, are acceptable to users? Right. So this notion is not just is there water that somebody has defined as potable, but is there water that's defined as potable for the local population, and and um, is it water that's not going to make people sick? Right. And this notion of non-discrimination, right? And so we can already see, I pulled from a Betselem report, there's plenty of room here to talk about the situation in Palestine. There's, there's a clear argument that could be made around discrimination or non-discrimination um, in terms of access to water. Um, but how do you define that and how do you define it locally so that a claim can be made? That's a different issue. But again, this the notion um, of non-discrimination is important because it is one of the footholds that gets used very commonly. Um, the notion of access to information, right? So, to what extent to do local do does a particular class of people have access to the decision-making process around water? Right? Um, and to what extent can they? Um, can they therefore make claims, right? And again, you can start thinking about uh, Israel-Palestine on this notion of access to information. Right? Who has access to what information? How widely is it distributed? And then accountability, ultimately. What is the, um, what is the remedy? Where can people go to get accountability? Now, one of the, the one of the key points here, though, is we have to think about who are the uh, um, who who are the actors that have to be considered, right? 
Um, and what are the duties of those actors, right? So if we're talking about central and sub-state actors, um, are we talking about uh, who, who, we're talking about a question of sovereigns. Who are the sovereigns in, the, in a particular case, right? And to what extent, what, ex, what are their duties? Well, they have a duty to respect um, uh, um, respect rights, right? Requires its states to refrain from interfering directly or indirectly with the right to water and sanitation. To protect, right? Prevent third parties from interfering in the in, with the right, and to fulfill, to facilitate, to promote, to provide, right? So, so in other words, we can't. They can't just say, well, it's not our problem. They have a duty to intervene and to facilitate the right to water and sanitation, right? But, but what was very important, Caterina de Albuquerque early on made very clear that we're not just in, because of the landscape of water and sanitation in the, um, in the late part of the first decade of the 21st century, we absolutely have to think about non-state actors as well. And by this, they largely mean the private sector. Right? Um, the, this is controversial. There are, uh, for obvious reasons, the private sector actors are not necessarily um, thrilled to be included. But, but generally, there has been, a, um, at least coming out of the um, Special Rapporteur's Office, a consistent principle that that they have a duty to respect human rights, and um, specifically the human right to water and sanitation. And, um, and they must do due diligence to assess whether what they are doing impacts the human right to water and sanitation. And then the, um, there should be remedies in place when they do not. Okay. So where has this been implemented? Um, what is interesting is, is that there have been a series of legislation, a series of pieces of legislation, um, or efforts at legislation, um, in terms of implementation. The, um, there have been efforts in Israel-Palestine to make a claim that there was a violation of the, of the right to, to human right to water and sanitation. Um, there have been six, there was a successful claim with the Bedouin in the in the Negev Desert area early on, and it, and this came down to a development case where Israel wanted to move in and. There was a similar case in Botswana, and, it, and when you look at how the, the local courts dealt with the issue, they were very similar um, principles that were invoked, that the development of the state cannot um, override the right of people to have access to water and sanitation. Right? The state cannot simply decide that it will move people out by not providing them with this infrastructure. Um, there have additionally been cases in um, Argentina, Nicaragua, Guatemala, Ni Nigeria, Zaire. Um, most of those are pending. Most of those have not actually resulted in a, in a clear decision. 
Um, but there have been more countries, and you can see here um, a listing, that have actually um, either included the right to water and sanitation in their constitution or included it or um, uh, let's see, what's the difference here? Ah, okay. That more countries that have included water and then a fewer number of countries that have included sanitation specifically. Um, but you've, you've seen states take up this, this um, UNGA piece by actually putting down on paper this an acknowledgement of this right. And I have worked with um, community water associations in Malawi who've been who've been trying to work out um, what does that mean in real terms, right? In Malawi, for instance, where 60% of the population doesn't have access to complete plumbing facilities, but uh, doesn't even have access to a standpipe. What does this mean that there's a right to water and sanitation? And what's the obligation of the state? Um, it's an interesting question, right? Um, okay, so, so now what I wanted to do very quickly was make the case as to why, um, uh, as to why I might think that it's worthwhile to think about water and sanitation in the United States uh, in preparation for thinking about water and sanitation in Palestine. Because on their face, they're very different places. Um, but, but I think, writ simply, I think the one, one overriding frame we can think about is this is the Euro-colonial settlement frame. Right? Settler colonialism has certain ways of moving forward in accumulations of wealth, in terms of transformation of land, that, that provide for, obviously, contextual differences, but a lot of similarities. And, and again, since the 1990s, when I first uh, was doing in-depth research here, and the mid in the second decade of the 2000s, there's been a growth of literature that is comparing settler colonial movements. And I think it's a, it's a frame that's worth thinking about, because there's Settler colonial societies seem to run into very similar um, issues and have very similar effects on the population on which they settle. Um, uh, I won't. I think this is a crew that's it's pretty um, that is that has a lot of experience with this literature. So I won't go a lot further. Um, than to simply say that there's a good literature that has documented how these patterns seem to replicate themselves um, in both in narratives and in terms of um, patterns of land transformation and patterns of resource distribution. Um, so uh, my what I will do here, I clearly lifted this slide from another presentation. Um, is compare a little bit um, conditions in the U.S. and Palestine. All right, so back to our human, our, our human rights claims. So if we're thinking about this as a model, we can think about these notions of access, of safety, sufficiency, affordability, non-discrimination, and accountability in terms of thinking about conditions, trends, and historic processes, right? 
Um, and the notion is that within each of those boxes, there are different kinds of techniques that can become useful in, in trying to make these claims. So let me talk a little bit about how we've, what we have done in thinking about the human right to water in Detroit. Um, again, clearly I lifted this from a much longer presentation on the human right to water in Detroit. But the point would be that what we needed to do in Detroit in 2014 was to prove that, there act that the issue of affordability was not an issue of lax payment. And so, you, so, there, so what we had to do was to be able to show, and you can see in this description, not just what the Detroit water rate was, but how it compared to other water rates in the region and in the United States. And one of the things we were able to show in the documentation that convinced the special rapporteur to come and do a report was that was that the water rate in Detroit, even if you took the figures that the um, that the water authority was was giving us, which was um, a third lower than almost any household we talked to, they said that you know the base rate is sixty-seven dollars a month. We couldn't find anyone who was paying less than a hundred dollars a month for for water at a, at a household rate. But even given $67 a month, this was a third higher than any other comparable city in the United States. Right? So this is effectively, uh, um, you, we had to use um, statistical techniques right, to demonstrate what the, what the difference was and to demonstrate that there actually was a difference that was meaningful. We also, though, had to show that um, we, the water in Detroit, as it turns out, was potable, right? So, um, so that was okay. But then there was this question of accountability. And again, when we went back and talked to residents in, in Detroit, Michigan, what they told us was that our, any effort to appeal our, our, um, our water bill, any effort to try to understand why our water bills were so high was met with resistance. And so this, this then, rather than using statistical techniques, involved lots and lots of focus groups and interviews with, with citizens and with activists to try to understand what the mechanisms were that, were, that kept them from being able to make a, a viable complaint to either to the city or to the state department of environmental quality um, about, uh, for instance, contesting their rates or contesting um, declarations of non-payment, which is to say we had people who would say, I've been paying my bill. They just delivered me this notice saying I haven't been paying my bill. Um, and, uh, and, and being able to document how the, uh, a repeated pattern of this. But you do this not as much through statistical techniques as through in-depth interviews that demonstrated um, this pattern. And then, it, and then, actually, um, the, I've been doing some work now on the discrimination piece, which actually has had a spatial component, looking at where water water cutoffs have been have been greatest within the city of Detroit, and it and it turns out to be in the areas that are um, predominantly low income, but more importantly, predominantly African American. 
So you're not seeing water cutoffs in those areas of Detroit where you have white populations. You're seeing a lot of them in the areas where there's almost no white population. Right? So you can make an argument now of discrimination um, based on, based on um, spatial analysis of who's getting cut off and, and, um, and where they sit within the area, the area of influence. Um, and then this issue of lack of information, which goes back to accountability. Um, and then the, the last bit was uh, um, ability of redressing the courts. And what we, what, um, we were helped significantly by the um, Court of Michigan throwing out attempts to, uh, um, attempts to sue the city for water cutoffs. So, so it gives us a little bit of a, right, so this accountability piece, right, um, that uh, what was interesting in the case was that the, um, <coughs> was that the, the notion was that bankruptcy, the city's bankruptcy trumped access to water for, lo for the local population. Um, so in Flint, and this case is obviously much is is happening right now, but the um, the efforts have been very similar. What we add to this is um, a mapping of of safety and where the lead levels have been highest in the city. Um, and as it turns out, North Flint is almost entirely African American. South Flint um, is below that road that you can see that cuts through. Um, is almost entirely white, and lo and behold, you have a much greater portion of high lead counts in the north of the city, um, and a great greater number of water shutoffs as well in the north of the city. And um, uh, but again, you have these issues. We we've been doing these interviews with citizens, talking about their efforts to deal with both the the quality of the water and the cost of the water and the fact that they effectively the local elected officials who are responsible to them say that they have no say over what happens with water. Okay, so those are two urban cases dealing with domestic supply. The last case I want to talk about from the US is um, Eagle Creek, which in some ways is, is well, it, which is quite different because this it has to do with a mining case in, in northern Michigan, where uh, it was Rio Tinto, it's now a different company. Um, uh, but the, the crux of the issue is that the, the local Indian population has wanted to make a human right to water claim on because the mine is, will likely completely destroy a river that, they, that is central to the tribe's activities. And um, and what they have wanted to say is, irregardless of whether you would you could pipe in potable water, this this is a violation of our human right to water and sanitation because that river is central to our um, to our food sovereignty. It is central to uh, uh, to our cultural activities. It is central to a range of other things that we have to do to be um, people. Right, and um, and so 
we've been able to document easily these sort of lack of disclosure, lack of standing in the courts. Um, uh, affordability is a non-issue, but what we have been working on doing is documenting things like the water quality deterioration from mining activities. Um, uh, the changes in um, the, the changes in food self-sufficiency from not being able to fish in the river as the water quality deteriorates. The um, changes in ability to carry out uh, rituals um, based on deterioration of the, of the water and the breakdown of cultural um, uh, cultural cohesion and social cohesion. We're getting some traction at the international level uh, with this, which is uh, a bit surprising, but has but um, is is also encouraging in terms of the possibility of expanding this so that it can be applied beyond just the hundred liters per day ruling. Okay, so. Um, if we are going to talk about, apply this to Palestine, I think we do need to think about some of the precursors. One of the things I noted in the, um, in the Al-Haq documents uh, that looked at water and sanitation is that they start, and I think this is a critical place to start, with debunking the myths, right? So Samar Al-Atut's uh, brilliant work from the late um, first decade of the, of the 2000 uh, used, the imagine, used the theory of imaginaries to talk about Israel's uh, colonial active, settler colonial activities around water takings. Um, but part of that was this shift that occurred soon after the foundation of the state from, from claiming abundance of water that wasn't being used widely to <coughs> claiming scarcity of water. And that is the imaginary that persists to this day in most of the international community when they think about Palestine. And you can look at any UN map right now, and um, severe water scarcity is marked in red over Israel-Palestine as it is over much of the Middle East. Um, and it's helpful to point out It's possible, although it, it is, okay, but 596 millimeters of rain per year is, is not a small amount of rain per year, right? I mean, my parents live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where they're talking about 235, right? Um, and, I, and I do think, I, I, it's fine. I mean, you can use a different analogy. The, um, but the, but the point is that it, Palestine is not necessarily water scarce without um, without restrictions from the Israelis, right? 619 millimeters of rain in Ramallah, there should never be a water shortage if you're storing water properly, right? Um, we can take away the London part, right? I mean, we could we could look at. Yeah, this is this is a Ramallah. Yeah, the average. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We know. 
but we and we know that water goes you know Janine would be your classic example where there's in terms of precipitation there's plenty of rainfall but in but it turns out actually Janine is the is the region that has the highest population that doesn't have complete access to water right is that, am I correct about that that used to be the case yes so so if we are so part of what we need to think about though is the are the strategy yeah this is um, I'm at the stage now where I'm effectively going to throw out ideas and we can open it up to conversation. So, um, the, so some thoughts about sort of how we would go about thinking about making a case. And part of what we would have, what I'm arguing we have to do is some of these, these mappings of, of availability of water, mapping of consumption of water, right? So we know there's this general principle, right? But then how do you document what the drivers are? And part of this is understanding where are the, um, how, what, how does per capita consumption vary across a place like the West Bank and a place like, like Gaza? The, is, there is there per capita consumption that's less than Israel, than less than um, Jews within Israel? And in some cases there is, in some cases there isn't. Um, but so there's this relative to Israelis, but there's also understanding the the relative relativity across the West Bank, right? Water, uh, the availability of drinking water in Ramallah is very different from Janine, is very different from the Hebron villages, and and actually documenting that in a way that gets at drivers is important. The West Bank average is 73. <laughs> and this is uh, how many liters per watt? This is liters per day. So the UN. Yeah, for domestic use. So the UN standard is 100, right? Um, the average across the West Bank is 73. But we also know if we looked at Tubas, if the my suspicion is that if we calculated the eastern slopes, you would you would fall even below Tubas, right? So, so, so you have different accessibility. But then the second part of it is, in addition to that, is thinking about the cost. Right? How much do people pay? So if I look at my water bill in Ramallah. It's actually, frankly, quite reasonable, right? I don't, I don't find. Um, but if we were to talk about how much people are paying for trucked-in water in the eastern slopes, exactly. And and you found when I did interviews in Janine, um, now five years ago, <coughs> seven years ago, um, there were villages like that in Janine as well where they were getting trucked water and they were paying very high rates for their trucked water. This, of course, it there, and then there's variance between those places that are getting effectively Mekorot water that's coming from Israel and those places that are using local supplies. 
Um, additionally, we could think about, scare, uh, about um, quality of water issues and where are there issues around quality of water, right? Um, what's coming out of the ground? Again, when I did interviews in Janine seven years ago, this was a very significant issue for some of the low-lying communities. Um, and, and trying to then understand, there's, this is sort of the mapping piece, but then understanding what are the drivers, right? And, and starting to understand who are the responsible parties. Um, the, uh, the second piece, though, goes back to my earlier work and the work that I love most, which is really understanding how, how water uh, availability has changed over time. Right? So there's the conditions now. But I think it's also very important, there's, there's a great possibility of using the sort of landscape history stuff that a number of us have been involved in to, to understand this, this historical process. So it's not just that Israel put in dams on the Sea of Galilee and piped water into the Mechorot. It's, it's these processes of putting in settlements that take water from downstream communities. So uh, I was, I think I mentioned earlier this week to someone that uh, you know, I, I became very exercised when I read an article in the New York Times about the about how Etzion Junction was a point of reconciliation. Because in doing my research in that area, um, one of the things that, that became very clear was that the Bush Etzion settlements effectively took away the, the spring water from that went down into Wadi Arun. Um, and and so understanding those processes. Right? And there's every reason to believe that that was no accident, right? That, that Etzion Junction and then Efrat um, decided to put their settlements just where those springs were so they could use them, right? And, and that either by, um, either by uncovering documents or by association, you can make that claim. Right? Um, and that claim, likewise, can be then turned into part of uh, human right to water and sanitation. So um, I think I'm at the point where I can sort of close up and with, uh, with some key points, but also hopefully open this up for a conversation uh, about what I've missed, because I'm sure I've missed significant amounts. Um, but what I would like to see is, it, um, if there's interest, is um, this maybe be the, the start of a conversation about collaborations to start doing this kind of research. So, I'll close with that. <laughs>